Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Um, today, we're going to be speaking with a... This gentleman is one of my favorite people. Uh, he always goes the extra mile to help people who have kidney disease. He comes to our events. He's His life is helping people who have kidney disease. And uh, we have Vernon Silva. He's a social worker, and he has been doing this job for over almost 20 years. And he's going to talk to us today about the role of the nephrology social worker. So welcome to the show, Vernon. Lori, thank you so much for having me. Hello, everybody. Once again, it's Vernon Silva, nephrology social worker for almost 20 years. Yep. And I'm here to help you all understand a little bit more about the social worker in your life. So tell us a bit, little bit about, you know, why was the nephrology social worker role created? If that's the, a perfect way to, for us to start off with, Lori. It was because I kind of understand what the spirit of the law is and what it's kind of turned into in reality. The spirit of the law was to have a mental health professional placed within each facility. And we're going to be talking about dialysis uh, facilities solely here, Lori, as opposed to transplant. That would be another conversation we're going to have. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So the spirit of the federal regulation was to place a mental health professional into each dialysis facility in order to help each patient with their adjustment and building coping skills in order to assess dialysis and kidney disease. But what's happened since is, since there is a psychosocial component to almost everything that takes place in life, the uh, role of the social worker has kind of been hijacked, Lori, and kind of turned into something different as opposed to being the counselor that they're supposed to be. Well, and when you have an illness, too, um, you know, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, but they're like, the patients are angry. I'm like, well, yeah, they, you should be angry. You were just diagnosed with, you know, your kidneys no longer work. Your whole life has been turned upside down and you have to rely on a machine to live. Like if you're not angry, something's wrong with you. <laughs> um, that's always been my response when I hear that from somebody, that that's normal. Absolutely. It is. It's a normal reaction. There is anger, there is depression, there is fear, there's, as you know, hopelessness sets in, there's guilt, all kinds of things, all kinds of emotions, all kinds of thoughts and feelings that need to be worked out and worked through. But you can't always do it on your own, can you? You know from Renal Support Network that we can't do it all alone. We need one another. And included in the facility's medical team is somebody who helps you work through that, and that's the nephrology social worker. Well, and you know what's interesting is I had um, an ankle replacement last uh, November, and it's somewhat a little bit the same as uh, after about six months, you know, and I, I've had a little complications. I've had to go a little bit longer physical therapy, and people are like, are you better yet? Are you better yet? And and then um, I was out at a store, and I I told a little white lie, and I said, um, oh, and they're like, oh, what happened? I'm like, oh, yeah, I was hit by a drunk driver. And they had a totally different response than if I said I had an ankle replacement. I It was really weird. They're like, oh, that's so sorry. And if I say I had an ankle replacement, they're like, don't want to talk to me. And it's the same analogy when you say you're on dialysis. Like, people can't relate to it. So you're dealing with a lot of uh, emotional rejection 
from people that you once felt were close because they're dealing with their own issues of whatever they are about um, because you face your mortality when your kidneys fail. That's that's the bottom line. Absolutely. And very related and similar to that is the stigma that comes along with those who do want to have talk therapy, psychotherapy, and work through those emotions that come along, you know, whether you injure your ankle or have kidney failure. And that's what the nephrology social worker is there to do. They can be considered a clinician. Mm -hmm. They can be considered a therapist, um, a counselor, a clinical case manager, or we just say social worker. Now, Lori, did you know that nephrology social workers must have at least two college degrees to even be employed and be working in a facility? I did not know that. It's amazing. You have to have a master's degree in social work only. You can have a hundred different master's degrees in anything else, even something called counseling or be a marriage and family therapist, and that is fine. But it is the federal law, which is enforced by state law, that you must have what's called an MSW, a master's in social work. And as you may know, to get a master's, you have to have a bachelor's degree as well. So you can, you must have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in order to even qualify. But on top of that, Lori, you also have to have a clinical license from, from your state. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you can be deemed and recognized by the state as a psychotherapist. There's a reason for this. There's a reason why that was placed into the federal law. And that's for social workers to be there and available to all of us to provide counseling, to provide therapy, and to do referral to when the therapy really needs to be done off-site. Well, and I think, too, that, you know, you talk a little bit about, you know, the the trauma of being on dialysis and some of the reluctance that I've seen in some of our membership of just like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm like, no, you're not. You're, you're, uh, you're depressed. Um, and I always, uh, my question to to find out if a patient is not feeling well as like, do you have anything you look forward to? And if they say no, uh, that's always kind of a little litmus test for me to, to understand that they've kind of spiraled down and think that they don't have a future. And mm-hmm. uh, so tell us a little bit about what you've seen some of your patients who benefit from having regular visits and being able to communicate some of their needs. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of listeners could relate to, let's just start with needle phobia. The fear of having those needles um, placed into the body, even to the point that uh, somebody might even refuse to have their temporary catheter removed simply because of that. Well, a psychotherapist is specifically trained to have a toolbox full of clinical techniques, strategies, and tools that they can utilize during talk therapy, whether it's in the social worker's office, whether it is uh, chair side or maybe on the telephone, um, where they can uh, discuss with the patient and provide the counseling techniques that will help somebody feel more comfortable to be more accepting. And I have done this myself and with others. Uh, For example, we can teach mantras. You and I have discussed that before when we talked about what to do when you're waiting. So a mantra is when a person repeats something to themselves over and over to help relax. For instance, I might be able to say, 
I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. All the time during the cannulation. Right. We also can teach um, breathing techniques. And we can also teach visualizations. These are all the tools, techniques, and strategies that nephrology social workers carry with them that produce positive outcomes if people knew that that's what the social workers could do. So that is an example there, Lori. Well, and you know, one of the things that, and I didn't even realize I do this, but when I'm waiting for some test results that may be, I like the, I love the term when I hear back, oh, it was unremarkable. Like that's my favorite word. It, it, your, <laughs> your, your result is unremarkable. I'm like, yay, because that means um, they didn't find anything. But I continually repeat to myself, okay, wait to worry wait to worry, wait till tomorrow to worry about it, wait till tomorrow, and then, you know, tomorrow never comes. And I repeat mm-hmm. that over and over again. So I didn't even know that that was actually a, a skill that I developed somewhere to deal with and anxiety. Are, <laughs> it's beautiful. And these are the techniques, including lots of other anxiety-inducing or uh, working against uh, those stresses that induce anxiety that we come up with and we work with our patients through. And we do it all individually. It's all a individual treatment plan. And it's all done confidentially and privately, too. But it really helps out, as you can see. Exactly. It, it helps me. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to plaster it on plaques and put it around my house because it's, you know, worry doesn't help that much. And I just decide, you know, I'm going to worry about that tomorrow. And try to refocus myself in the moment and enjoy the moment because that's all you can really do. Well, as you know, the uh, kidney patients go through lots of stress on so many levels and in so many different intensities. And it does cause a lot of discomfort. Right. Um, So the uh, social worker is specifically trained to provide counseling uh, with the techniques such as the one we just used as an example to help patients become more comfortable and even be able to follow the advice of the medical team and the doctor better and more, or to even understand it better. We use techniques like providing emotional support. We do active listening. Um, There's some techniques that are called empathic responding, furthering responding, and reflective responding. You know, there's something about saying things out loud that research has discovered that really benefits patients that really benefits anybody who's going through a challenge. You know, haven't you ever heard somebody say, I'm sorry, I just needed to vent. Well, well, what they mean by that is I simply had to say something out loud. Exactly. And so your social worker is there to hear you say that out loud and to not only hear you say it out loud, but to validate your feelings and your thoughts that surround it. And also to ensure that you're saying everything out loud that you need to, because sometimes we just are working on the surface and not deep down where those root causes are really causing discomfort. So your therapist, your clinician, your social worker, your clinical case manager or so forth is there to ask the right questions in the right way to pull out that all of those feelings and thoughts and help you face them. In our world, Lori, crying is good. We don't say, oh, don't cry. We say, let it out and release. Exactly. Well, and, you know, I hope this is true for most people. But, you know, I have like this committee in my head. And when you hold those thoughts in and you don't express them to somebody who 
really listens to them and validates what you're saying, they bounce around in this committee in your head, and this committee goes kind of crazy, and it, like, starts to sabotage you and starts to tell you. And for me, what I, I've, I mean, I've, I have this committee that, you know, I never want to feel like a burden, and I don't want to inconvenience people. And, uh, you know, then you start to say things to yourself. And, I mean, I recognize these committee members. And and when it's late at night and there's nobody to talk to, they seem to be louder and louder. And um, it can make you so depressed and make you feel so hopeless. And um, I know my husband said to me one time, you know, it's going to be okay, Lori. You're going to be okay. And that, like, that, like, helped me. Him just, you know, making me understand I was going to be okay because the train had already left with this horrible emotional um, roller coaster, and I couldn't get myself out of it. And I just needed somebody to reassure me I was going to be okay. And I'm like, okay, I'll just believe you for now, you know. But it, it's yeah. just so powerful. These emotions are so powerful. Absolutely. What you know, you almost said exactly what I tend to provide my patients when I give them psychoeducation or education. And I say, I say basically the same thing. I say, you know, you have these ideas in your mind, and when they're not released through talking, they bounce around, they ping pong around like a pinball in your head, and they morph into what they weren't even intended to be. Right. And what a lot of times we end up with, and you might relate to this, are defense mechanisms. Now, people may not know the term defense mechanisms, but I bet you've heard of saying, somebody saying, you live in denial. Okay? <laughs> That's a defense mechanism. So when somebody might want, want to face something and they minimize it or intellectualize it or in denial, um, that's, that produces negative outcomes. And so those of us who are mental health professionals, somebody who's right at your hands, free for you to utilize in the dialysis clinic, is aware of these things, and it can help you through it through talk therapy and psychoeducation for sure. Well, and one of the things that happens when you have an illness is sometimes your your friends and family treat you differently. And they just don't know how to treat you or they don't know what you need and they're kind of afraid. And And I learned when I was sick one time, um, I got involved in an art project and, you know, because I love to have people around me. Mm-hmm. And I actually created an environment where they would, I'm like, oh, come over and see what I'm doing. And then we ended up sitting down and making, you know, I had buttons at the time. You know, everybody was playing with buttons. And um, I had to create the environment to make more people come around me because they didn't really know what to say to me when I was so seriously ill. And I had to communicate in a different way because, you know, people get freaked out and you think that somebody's going to be there and they don't know what to say and they kind of are missing in action. <laughs> and it, it makes you feel bad. That's right. So social workers are not only behaviorists, they're also what we call systems theorists. That's systems theorists. And what that means is that we see each individual in environment and we understand the different pressures and relations that go on between people, whether it's part of your family or your friends. And so when we do our talk therapy or we provide help in any way, we keep that in mind and point it out to you and provide you avenues, ways for you to deal with, um, you know, those ins and outs of everyday 
relationships with people because, you know, we do have those ups and downs. And in, in the dialysis unit, so tell us a little bit about uh, you, you see the patient. And I know currently uh, a lot of the job is, you know, they, there comes up to being like financial issues, just the transportation to get to the unit. Um, how does psychosocial issues fit into the mix with this um, uh, in a dialysis unit? Like how much time do you have? Right. So we, as you must know, there there's not a lot of time to spend with each individual patient. And that's why we do a lot of referring out to community mental health and to just community resources anyways. So we're kind of like a manager of all of the resources that exist in the community so that we can direct patients out. It's a shame that we don't have a ratio. Uh, what's recommended is that each social worker should have a caseload of about 75 patients. But the truth of the matter is that they're responsible for more like 120 and 25. So it really makes time limited. So what I was going to say is there is a distinction between concrete issues and clinical issues. And before we can even begin, well, before we can begin in earnest to really focus in, on those clinical issues that you and I have been discussing, you do have to stabilize and make sure that the case the patient has all of their basic needs being met or at least being addressed, housing, insurance coverage, transportation to and from, lots of concrete things that we do go ahead and deal with and sometimes get a little too over caught up in. So it's always nice when there ever, whenever there is a case aid or there is a secretary who can take those on. So we do spend a lot of time stabilizing our patients' lives just basically you know, referring out for Social Security benefits, for Medi-Cal or Medicaid uh, insurance coverage, Social Security, and so forth. But once we're able to stabilize and also teach our patients about what they're experiencing medically and how their bodies and their minds are reacting to that, we can start on um, all of the clinical. Now, these days, we work in an environment which is what is called evidence-based. And that means that we quantify. We quantify the results or the of the test, the psychological tests that we do, and we try to describe the emotions that persons are going through through the results of these psychological tests. So the two main psychological tests that you will have your social work do is a depression screening, mm -hmm. which is mandated to be done once a year, and a quality of life survey, which also is mandated to be done at least once a year. In learning about a person's depression or in learning about somebody's quality of life, it helps for the clinician, for the social worker, and the rest of the medical team to collaborate together on certain goals, very specific goals, goals that are specific, measurable, attainable, a relative, and in a time frame. We call them SMART goals, okay, for us to all work on those. Now, it is so important for us to cooperate and go ahead and go through with these quality of life surveys, and I'll tell you why. Research has shown that if a person thinks, doesn't matter whether it's in reality or not, just thinks that their quality of life is low, they are at high risk for hospitalizations, and 
mortality or survival or longevity can be compromised. Those are really, really important things to do. And part of that quality of life survey, that quantitativeness that I'm talking about, involves certain point scores. And it has been shown by research that if even the score goes down two points, the risk goes higher, again, for survival and hospitalization. So it's important that we monitor a person's what we call perceived quality of life so that we can help collaborate with them on goals that will reverse that trending. Right. I know some people um, get upset because they're like, you know, you're serving me to death. Um, <laughs> do you ever have that <laughs> where the patient doesn't really want to fill out the survey? <laughs> Absolutely. And what I do to address that, and, and anybody who's listening can request this as well, but ask that the social worker sit with you and administer it interview style. Right. Not only does it make it kind of nice there and doesn't put the pressure on you and it makes it a little more personal, but what happens is the kidney patient actually ends up responding what I call more clinically. That means as I'm asking the questions, they trigger patients' thoughts and feelings and verbalizations and they want to like share things and get some things off their chest or discuss things or ask questions. So it's so nice that that I kind of disguise even the survey sometimes as just a simple intervention, you know, a, right. a therapy session because it becomes that. And so I would suggest that you do that. Do cooperate even though you do get burned out. We can come up with creative ways for you to get around it. Well, and I know, too, that um, our most social worker visits – by the chair, because sometimes I don't really feel like talking when I'm by the chair. So does a patient have an option to choose where the visit will take place? Yes, options do um, exist. Um, as mentioned earlier, we can have a phone session. And you know, sometimes that's actually very good because we don't have to look at each other. Sometimes in just looking at your therapist, it's more difficult to share and to be upfront and honest. But you can have a phone conversation from at your home, the comfort and the privacy of your own home. Most social workers have their own office, and if they do share an office there at the facility, um, they can ask their office mate to uh, go elsewhere, and you can have privacy there. And when you do uh, meet at Chairside, um, you can you lower your voices and so forth, but you do, it does have to be understood that people might overhear some very private and confidential information, and maybe that isn't the best place to do some of these things. The other thing, too, Lori, is research has shown that during dialysis, our mental faculties are really not at their best. Okay, right. they can. Uh, so sometimes it's not ideal for us to meet with our clients at chairside, but sometimes that we have no choice. Um, those of you listening, try to come in early or set up an appointment with those uh, with your social worker to come in late or stay late or something with your transportation so you can take advantage of the privacy in the office. So in addition to talking about emotions and some of the uh, issues that are going on with perhaps housing or uh, getting a check, uh, talk a little bit about how uh, vocational rehabilitation is a role of the social worker as well as, you know, do you want to change treatment options? Do you talk about that? 
Absolutely. We're required to, and we actually, meaning by the federal government's uh, regulations, and there's even a timeline by which we're supposed to have had these conversations and repeat the conversations. So our patients should feel pretty protected that they're going to be kept up to date with all of these issues. Vocational rehabilitation is a program run by the state and the county, which offers those who are deemed disabled, and that would be by definition our kidney patients, the opportunity to be provided a benefit, and that benefit includes either paying their tuition for going to college or any kind of training, like, say, medical billing, and uh, placement in um, jobs, job training, okay? So, all the social worker and the patient have to do is talk, discuss it. The social worker will go over the details and facilitate a referral. It's very easy. The patient will then be contacted by a representative from the vocational rehabilitation office, or voc rehab we call it, from the county or the state, and an appointment will be set up where the patient can come on in and discuss their goals. What would they like to do? in terms of employment. Do they want to still work part-time? Do they want something that doesn't require so much physicalness? Maybe I had somebody who used to be a mechanic that maybe now because he's bilingual could be trained to be a translator so it's not so physically taxing on him and so forth. Vocational rehab is a wonderful benefit out there. It's not necessarily uh, working every time, Lori. Sometimes I get various results or reports back from my patients that it's worked and it's worked perfectly. I mean, I have my wonderful stories from persons who have gone on to become, um, to get a college degree in psychology and become a a chemical uh, dependency uh, counselor. Whereas others have said, you know, they never followed up with me and I kind of let it go. So you yourself have to be um, very assertive and make sure that the process is carried through. Well, and then, you know, a lot of times I've heard some of my friends, they uh, decided that, you know, after the initial shock of having dialysis and it's just so dramatic and they may have crashed in the emergency room, that they decided they wanted to go on home dialysis because they wanted to stay employed and it worked better for them to be home. And does the social worker help with that transition? Absolutely. So what we begin with is education. Uh, when you first meet with a patient, let's say who's somebody who's new to you, they've come in, either they've transferred in or they crashed in for, from the emergency room or, you know, just initiated uh, on their own time, then we uh, provide them education and then there should be, it should be accompanied by printed educational materials about all the different home modalities. That would include peritoneal dialysis and there's a couple of um, types of that. There's a nocturnal dialysis, which is actually in the center, but it feels like home because you stay overnight at a center and kind of have your own uh, bed at times. And you have home hemodialysis, which could be set up in your home. The setup that you're experiencing there at the facility is set up in your home and covered by your insurance just the way going into a facility is covered. So we provide the education and we introduce the concepts. And we try to facilitate conversations with the rest of the medical team with the patient so that they understand more about it 
And then we can also be the persons who facilitate the actual referral to a program, whether it's there at that facility, whether it is in the community or elsewhere. And, you know, it's it's so important because I, I was able to work you know, pretty much all the all the time in my working years when I was on dialysis. and and I think, you know, when you have too much free time when you're you have a chronic illness, it can be really depressing. You can feel like, you know, you, you don't have any value. So you need to find some purpose. If it's taking care of your grandkids or volunteering somewhere, um, it just makes such a, a it's so beneficial to your your well-being, emotional well-being. Um, Verdon, I wanted to know a little bit about, you know, if you're seeing a patient in a clinic, there's only so much you can do. Um, do you find that insurance pays for additional visits outside of the dialysis center? So you're talking about whether um, a patient would receive counseling outside, if that would be covered? Yeah, like, you know, because I think of the makeup of the dialysis center, and it's very fast-paced, and, you know, I might want to meet with my family. You know, there's sometimes just family issues you need to learn how to communicate, or most patients are on Medicare, or they may have a private insurance. Can they see a social worker outside of the clinic and it be reimbursed for payment? For the most part, yes. As you know, everybody's individual policy kind of varies. Um, even those who have Medicare, because sometimes they assign the the Medicare over to a commercial insurance, which has certain parameters on um, in regards to their benefits. But for the most part, yes, Medicare does allow you to see mental health professionals outside of the dialysis setting, so that you can receive true um, psychotherapy sessions where you sit uh, for 50 minutes and have a wonderful therapeutic discussion. Uh, you work through your emotions and set goals on how your life can be improved upon both emotionally and physically. Um, even those who are listening who may have Medi-Cal or Medicaid these days, um, those types of policies have been funneled into health plans themselves, which also offer that benefit. There are lots of community resources, Lori, for counseling. And so it is the social worker's responsibility to be aware of them all and for them to provide these um, professional uh, benefits to uh, the patients. And as you know, there are also peer um, situations. We have the uh, RSN Hope Line mm-hmm. and others that exist out there that, that uh, persons can also uh, get kind of um, a para professional counseling session. And then and then we also are responsible for, even though it's not mandated by any law or anything, but uh, we try as social workers to set up support groups, either in the community or in our own facilities, which can be run very professionally by a trained mental health professional. Well, RSN has been doing a support group for I mean, over 20 years. I mean, it's, it's, we've been uh, every single month. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of support groups that have lasted very long across the country. I've watched them come and go. And I can say for certain that I have never had a person come to a support group and say that they felt worse when they left. (laughs) They always feel better. They always Mm -hmm. feel. Um, you know, inspired because of, of just, 
you know, chatting with your peers, somebody who understands your personal brand of pain. Uh, the one thing that I know that's very interesting is that people who come to the support groups, they often kind of get what they need and decide not to come back. And then I have another person who they come and they just want to come back and be helpful to other patients. And I wish there was more of the latter, um, you know, that they just continue to participate. And when somebody comes to a support group, they need to meet somebody. Like we have a couple of men that come to our support group. And we were so grateful for that because usually we have more women. I guess we like to get talk a little bit more or something. I don't know what the reason is, but it's so wonderful because if we have a, a somebody show up that, you know, they're considering PD and one of our members is a, is a guy who's been on PD, they can share information with them that I may not be able to. And it's just so wonderful if, for those who are listening. If you have the ability to just be a regular at a support group, <laughs> you can help so many people. And, Absolutely, uh, and from what I'm hearing you say is that it works. What you're saying is they kind of get what they came and were looking for, they got it, and now they can kind of move on with their new tools uh, in their toolbox. Exactly. You know, their new coping skills, which is wonderful to have, but we, you know, life never stops, right, Lori? Right. I mean, we continue to have types of uh, challenges come at us this way or the other, and there are lots of things that happen in dialysis that we have to always be confronting, which require us to continue to go on to therapeutic situations, definitely. And there's a lot of, you know, social media uh, bulletin boards out that a lot of patients share on. Uh, one thing I get very frustrated about, and I was talking to a colleague, though, is that sometimes you know, patients can't give medical advice. I get so upset when they start to tell another patient, oh, well, one of the questions that just killed me the other day was that, oh, I forgot to take my transplant meds. Am I in danger? And somebody said, oh, I forget them all the time. And I'm not, I'm okay. And like, there was about 10 of us like jumped on. I'm like, wait a second. Like, you know, mistakes happen. But, um, you know, your kidney works with the medication until it doesn't, then you have a problem. And uh, but uh, so um, it's really important that if a patient is seeking advice from another patient to make sure that they're not giving advice, they're only sharing their experiences and, you know, what they've done to improve. Because we try to maintain that at our, our support group, because uh, you can't, you know, give medical advice. It, it can be... Uh, you know, that's what the doctor is for in the healthcare team. Absolutely. And the same goes for the social work settings and our sessions that we have. No direct medical advice. However, um, we can become that liaison between the patient and the uh, medical doctor in, in order to um, bring to the attention certain issues that, that are under uh, the medical and physical realm that uh, maybe the patient might need a little bit of help uh, facilitating or, you know, communicating. Mm -hmm. But we also are deemed responsible for helping with the behavioral aspect of what the doctor has prescribed for the patient. And here's what I mean by that, Lori. There is, as we mentioned earlier, there's a psychosocial or a behavioral aspect to every single thing out in the world, and that's going to include all the aspects of your care. So if you feel that you are struggling with managing those fluids, who doesn't? That's the hardest right. thing in the world, right? Yes. Or what, or what about sitting there so long? So you start to shorten your treatments. 
or you start to even miss your treatments because you're like, you know what, this is just a little too overwhelming for me today. I can't make it in and so forth. The diet can be restrictive, especially if you also have diabetes and other comorbidities. You know, and and also your medications, the pill burden, what we call the pill burden, mm-hmm. is so strong there. that, And you then you add this all up together, and it's very overwhelming, and it's very stressful. So your social worker is there to help you to adapt to all of these demands on your body and all these demands on your behavior, because what then happens, and we're all aware of this, is when you do have those little slip-ups, then the shaming comes sometimes from others, the, the staff or the patients and so forth, and then we just kind of withdraw Spiral, spiral, with, <laughs> spiral down the spiral hole down. of the rabbit But hole. with the social worker, we were there with our toolbox to help pull you out of that, to even defend you and normalize what you are experiencing so others can realize that too. Um, sometimes the expectations of patients are unrealistic. We all know that. We all can relate to that. Your social worker is there to help have that and to help you get through that and communicate that. So to wrap up a little bit, and I'm going to bring up a very difficult question because, you know, we hear sometimes that, you know, my social worker isn't present. They're not, they're not there as much as I need them or I hear something like that. What, what advice can you give the patient to, to help remedy that? There's various ways that, we, that you could go about that. First of all, this is going to be a little bit controversial, but I think that people need to understand that sometimes the obvious isn't always the correct. And that's that grievances and complaints are good. Okay? People are afraid to speak up and state that there might be a member of the medical team, even if it's a social worker, that doesn't seem to be providing the care to them that they are expecting. And every single facility does have a grievance process. And we call these concerns, issues, problems, uh, whatever we want to, okay? That's actually looked at by the administration, gets nobody in trouble. In fact, we welcome them. And if there are complaints that state the social worker is invisible. They're so busy dealing with all the other patients or their documentation or other things. I don't feel like I'm served. Then you can utilize that uh, as a way to, as a vehicle to facilitate getting served again. Another thing is, is I want to make everybody know who's listening that your social worker is very open-minded and non-judgmental and safe. It is safe for you to at some point speak to the social worker, even by telephone, if you want to put a little degree of separation between you, and express how you're feeling. Everybody owns feelings, and they cannot be denied. So if you're feeling underserved, and you can state that, you can state it and not feel like you're hurting somebody or being judged by, especially by the social worker who I just mentioned has all this training. So those are two ways that you can do that. I hear that often as well, and that's why I had mentioned earlier, we really need to have ratios that so that the caseloads are actually smaller. You do have to be assertive, or I recommend that at least you do, but please don't be afraid. Don't let yourself not be served if you feel you're being underserved because you don't want to communicate that. 
Well, and it is. It's always hard to speak up. And I know for me, I, you know, I had a little health crisis this week, and I actually have decided to seek some some help to understand strategies of coping with what I went through to process it because I was let down by some people in the healthcare community. And I had to come to terms with that because it mm-hmm. brought me a lot of anger. And I, you know, I'm like, I know that I need to speak to somebody about this so that I won't harbor resentment. Because if you harbor resentment and then you have an illness on top, it's just you got to clear the decks with as much emotional baggage as you can to deal with all the upcoming emotional issues that an illness brings. And uh, and I just want to put one plug in because I think it's so important that if people are able to do it, an art or craft, um, you need to engage in something creatively. Those, that's one of my coping skills. And my second coping skills is animals. I love animals and I have animals and they're so nurturing and caring. And, you know, I think people have to look for strategies too when they have kidney failure of what brings them joy and what makes them want to get out of bed in the morning um, and don't watch too much news <laughs> um, yeah, exactly it's what it's um, what um, makes your heart sing and you know exactly. what you just you just express such wonderful coping skills and those are the things that we as social workers are trying to find out from you what makes your heart sing exactly so that we can help you to find that way to keep yourself busy and not get caught up and all of the the baggage that does on its own naturally come up. Exactly. So I wanted to also make sure that we touched on depression. We should actually have a full session on depression sometime. I think we should do that. But please just know for, for now that depression comes in all kinds of different ways. There's all kinds of names for it. There's all kinds of different medications and counseling sessions for it. There's all kinds of different symptoms. And so what we do once a year is a very simple tool. It's usually just a two-item questionnaire that asks two questions about depression. That's all. You know, asking patients if they feel down and also if they haven't, if they felt like they haven't wanted to participate in life. Okay? Just those two questions help us as the mental health professionals to open up that area of our world. We all have problems with keeping our spirits high. You know, Lori, you have to work anymore in order to not be depressed. You know that. <laughs> no, <laughs> like you I said, know. You just look at the news. Chronically happy isn't always an easy mental state to achieve. Absolutely. Uh, um, and sometimes it takes me a little bit, um, you know, to be chronically pissed off to get get the <laughs> get the um, wherewith to get to be chronically happy because I have to mm-hmm. move to get happy. But yes, I would love to do a follow up interview on. Uh, depression and different strategies because uh, the the literature shows and I'm somebody who was one of those people in the literature was I was depressed and you know what does that look like and it's 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 a normal process of of when you have such a serious illness and it's nothing to be ashamed about so absolutely yeah lastly I just wanted to share with you and everybody who's listening something called the nephrology which means dialysis social workers creed just to make sure that it really does hammer home exactly what social workers are supposed to be coming where they're supposed to be coming from you mind if i read it no to you? It's no very let's brief. let's close let's close the show with that creed uh, number one of four items i believe that my clinical social work interventions are valuable my interventions are to assist you with whatever you may need 
I'm flexible enough to know that the outcome might turn out to be something entirely unanticipated. Number two, I am here for you unconditionally. I provide unconditional emotional support and concrete assistance in an ethical and professional manner. I'm willing to be with you where you are right now, emotionally, physically, and philosophically. Number three, I am here to help you cope with any compromise necessary between your beliefs, expectations, and standards, and those of the environment that we exist in. And number four, I am here to provide education to empower you with information for making informed decisions. Lori, what a pleasure to share my in what I have to say about social work to you and to everyone who's listening. And that's really beautiful. And uh uh, everybody, um, you know, ask for help if you need it. And if you're not getting enough attention of, with your social worker, pick up the phone and tell them, hey, come serve me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is Vernon wishing everybody the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.